the big fear is that if these models are kind of a force multiplier, a show might have one or two showrunners, which are the creators or head writers who have the big idea for the show. And then you have the models generate the first drafts or like decent episode scripts. And then most of the writers become these kind of gig economy cheap writers who come in and polish it and punch it up. You know, it's like 12 people and you're just like, what could a episode be about? You just have no ideas. And, you know, it's sort of like, oh, what is, does the robot have any like ideas? I mean, almost without exception, it reverts to pretty cliche stuff. Even when I spent a lot of time trying to explain how novel concepts are arrived at. If we enter this near future where most written content for TV or films are generated by a model, I'm not sure we're going to see new voices come. I think we're going to see sort of this endless regurgitation of what's already out there. The best scripts or movies or TV shows are pretty polarizing. It's probably on the specifics of how they they choose certain outputs over others matters whether you get like a, a risky output that will be beloved by 10% of users and hated by 90% versus one that's kind of fine with everyone. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Omniki uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in Omniki so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Today, we're taking a bit of a different approach to understanding AI and its impact on the future with a series of three interviews with members of the currently striking Writers Guild of America. ChatGPT has been a part of daily life for just six months still, GPT-4 for only two and a half. And we're now beginning to see the first power struggles taking shape. The Italian government temporarily banned ChatGPT for alleged data privacy violations, and EU regulators have proposed various rules, including one that would require disclosure of copyrighted material used in training, which caused Sam Altman to say OpenAI would, in the worst case, have to leave Europe before later saying that, quote, we are excited to continue to operate here, and of course we have no plans to leave. And then there's the subject of today's episode, the Writers Guild of America, currently on strike, listing among its strike demands some assurances about the way that AI may and may not be used in the future of Hollywood writing. I had expected that this might happen first with doctors or lawyers. So when I heard about the WGA's AI-related strike demands, and especially after seeing some online reactions that caricatured the writers as reactionary Luddites, I knew that I wanted to get the writer's perspective directly. Was this really a core part of the dispute, or just good dramatic writing on the part of the Guild? I managed to get an introduction to a WGA board member, but he told me that he couldn't speak publicly while still engaged in active negotiations. Fortunately, as you'll hear, I tapped into a network of friends, Trey Colmer, Sophia Lear, and Garrett Schaub, all Guild members and all Ivy League grads, who have had very different levels of interest in and experience with AI to date. Trey, currently co-executive producer for the TV show Ghosts, 
was described to me as perhaps the single most knowledgeable guild member on the topic of AI. And he did not disappoint. I did not expect to find a Hollywood writer who would cite Neil Nanda's grokking paper. But in fact, I connected with Trey via a college dorm mate. Sophia has been a writer for TV shows including Ghosts, The Unicorn, and New Girl, and was also previously an assistant literary editor for The New Republic. She has the least hands-on experience with AI of these three, but expressed high curiosity and quite radical uncertainty about what the future might hold. Garrett has written for shows including Tosh.0 and Suits, and also written for Crooked Media. He's experimented with ChatGPT-assisted writing quite extensively, and has even developed his own personal ethical code to define the level of creative contribution that he will allow AI to make to his writing process. My takeaways from these conversations were several. First, the writers are not Luddites. And in fact, they are all really curious about the AI technology itself. They all get that AI can be both an amazing tool and a potential threat. They're not trying to ban ChatGPT, but rather ensure that the TV shows and movies that viewers watch remain fundamentally human creations. And yes, also, that they continue to get paid. Second, the importance of collective action and collective bargaining are likely to increase in the AI era. While traditional questions of revenue share remain largely central for now, the question of which roles AI will and won't be allowed to play will loom much larger going forward if only because the range of possible outcomes is so wide. AI can't yet write a professional quality script with any reliability, but it certainly seems plausible that it might before too long. And at that point, any number of economic structures become possible. Third, if AI progress doesn't stall out for another one to two years, it seems likely that we will want to consider more holistic social contract reforms. While the writers have enough social clout to have at least some chance of a successful strike. Fast food workers, like those at Wendy's, which recently announced that its new fresh AI drive through order taking service had outperformed human order takers, don't even have that. Allowing AI to freely enter the labor market without some structural reform seems more likely to provoke the backlash and perhaps overregulation that the accelerationists fear. It's no coincidence that Sam Altman is also running UBI experiments. Fourth, there are no simple answers. On the contrary, the right answer seems to vary dramatically by the type of activity under consideration, as well as the status quo and relevant alternatives. When it comes to medicine, for example, to me it seems clear that the individual's right to quality health information should outweigh the doctor's rights to high income. And to their credit, the medical establishment has responded very positively to AI, recognizing how much it can help them elevate their level of care, and also correctly recognizing that for people who truly lack access, some risk of AI imperfections must indeed be accepted in the name of the greater good. When it comes to culture, on the other hand, whether it's movies and TV or whatever else, to me it's much less clear what makes sense. Many in technology might be tempted to say, it's just entertainment, who cares if an AI or a human wrote it? But I honestly think this would be short-sighted. Yuval Noah Harari recently gave an outstanding lecture about the risks of AIs hacking the operating system of human civilization. That is language. And creating new risks of AI-powered cultural transformation, including the potential even for new religions. 
After all, as he notes, religions throughout time have claimed non-human origin for their sacred texts. With this in mind, a certain French-style cultural protectionism against AI might indeed be prudent as we seek to maintain humanity's place at the cultural helm. And finally, there's always a big risk that we're all still thinking too small. At a couple points in these interviews, we discussed the potential for totally new forms of entertainment that could only be created with AI, such as dynamically generated 3D virtual worlds with AI-generated and animated characters. Considering the progress across so many domains of generative AI, it's quite possible that such multimodal AI systems, far more integrated and advanced than ChatGPT, are ultimately the things that change the game in ways that force us to ask entirely new sets of questions. That's a lot to digest, but I hope you enjoyed this set of conversations with Trey Colmer, Sophia Lear, and Garrett Shaw. Trey Colmer, welcome to The Cognitive Revolution. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I have so many questions. For starters, maybe can you just tell me a little bit about kind of who you are and what you do in the you know crazy world that is Hollywood? Yes, I'm a writer. I mostly work on broadcast sitcoms. Right now, I'm a writer on a show called Ghosts on CBS. I guess I've been doing it since about 2010. And I've mostly worked on shows that I love, but that were canceled very quickly. And am, I'm finally on something that's sticking around. So let's start with just kind of how it works, because I have a sense, almost everything in, you know, TV and movie production has kind of a gig economy sort of flair to it. And I find it kind of, you know, fascinating how these productions kind of come together and disperse and it's very network driven as I understand. So I think that would probably be good to just kind of set up so that folks have a background. Yes. Yeah, so there's two for a television writer, there's two main ways that you're getting paid. One is you're developing new shows and one is you're joining a staff of a show that's been greenlit to be on the air. So the development process is it's kind of like you picture in the movies, you go in, you pitch an idea, you, you try to sell it to the network. And in, you know, 10 years ago, usually each network would buy, say, 70 comedy pilot scripts. It would buy a ton of them. When they buy your, if they buy your idea, what they're doing is hiring you to write the pilot script. That's kind of the work you're hired to do when you sell your idea. They buy your services to write the script and they buy all these options on, you know, they have the idea for the future, they could turn into a show. You have some guarantees of whether you stay have to stay working on the show and some profit participation. But it's really writing that pilot script that gives you the created by credit and ownership of the show and usually some rights to some of the back end and profit participation in success. And once you sell the script in January, they take those 70 back in the day. Now, all these numbers are much smaller. I'm not even sure what they are the past few years. They pick 10 to 12 of them to actually film, they cast, they build the sets, you film the pilot, those pilot episodes get tested to death. All the top execs from marketing and scheduling come together to kind of advise on which should become real shows. And then, you know, in the old days, four or five of them get greenlit to be on the, the next year's schedule to get produced. And then once, you know, it's usually one creator or a writing team does all that themselves. And then once it's greenlit to become a show, you get to hire a staff. On my current show, there are 14 writers on staff. On streaming shows, the rooms are much smaller. That's kind of one of the other points of the, of the labor dispute is 
try to maintain the size of the streaming rooms. That's the other way you make money. You, you get you interview for a job on a show that's going to be produced and you join the room for that. And then the process, once you're producing a show, usually you're all around a table generating kind of ideas for arcs for the season, for episode ideas. And then once you have an episode idea, you kind of all together or maybe you split up into somewhat smaller groups, come up with the general beats of what happens in an episode. And you divvy up responsibility for kind of capting an episode. So if you see written by flash on the screen at the beginning of a show, what it really means is they wrote the first actual draft of it. But in the process, everyone was brainstorming kind of everything that happens in the episode. Once they write the first draft, the whole room usually rewrites it together. So you can see there's kind of many different steps that these models could come in and try to do some of the work. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm starting to imagine, you know, if I was in your spot, like where I might start to call on GPT-4 a little bit. So let me come back to that in just a second. I want, there's one more term that I've seen flying around in the, you know, the coverage of this so far, and that is the MBA agreement and things that are MBA covered versus not MBA covered. And it seems like that's a pretty key distinction in terms of, you know, certain different types of projects. So can you unpack that for us from your perspective? Yes. So the MBA is basically our union contract. It guarantees a bunch of minimums. So it doesn't negotiate your working, you know, your final working terms, but it's like the minimum you can be paid for different types of work, the types of options they can have on you, the contributions to your health insurance and pension. And then once you have an offer for a job or a writing assignment, you're frequently negotiating you know, some terms that are better than the minimum, but it, it, it sort of sets the rules of the game. And for the major studios, I think once they sign on to the NBA, that means they're allowed to use union writers. But I believe they have to, for the types of content that are covered by the NBA, they can only use union writers. So for a while, some forms of animation were covered, so they could use non-union writers for that. I think a lot of our last strike was making sure that streaming was covered by the NBA, which seems like it was pretty prescient. Gotcha. So it's, I think I was a little bit confusing myself because when I read this term NBA covered, I was thinking that maybe like smaller shows or smaller budgets would be covered, but then like bigger things would be not covered. But it sounds like it's really more a standard high level agreement between a union and a studio and once that's locked into basically everything that they're going to do together is going to be covered. Yes, that's true. But I think one of the big points in this debate is trying in the current negotiation is trying to get more residuals from international streaming. It used to be you have a show on network, it would rerun everywhere or it would rerun and you get money for every rerun and you get money when they rerun it, start showing in other countries. And it's been tough translating the money we used to get for like replays of shows over the years on network to translate to streaming. And I believe in our last negotiation, we made progress on domestic streaming residuals. And I think a big push on this is for the international, which, which some of it is just even getting transparency on the number of subscribers, which I think a lot of the, the studios and platforms don't wanna share. Yeah, okay, cool. So that's really good context. And then obviously it's a complicated world, but now, here we are and GPT-4 just dropped and ChatGPT you know, just dropped a few months ago. So 
maybe for starters, like before we even get to kind of the union position, what have you seen in writers' rooms to date when it comes to different attitudes, different practices, you know, different, you know, using or not using, is it stigmatized? Like what's, what have you seen among writers when it comes to, you know, shunning or embracing or some, you know, perhaps complicated mix of how they approach GPT? So we were only back for three weeks this season since chat GPT came out before the strike hit, but it, it didn't seem like anyone was using it for work. Among my friends who are writers, it's a, it's a mix of some, a few people are really experimenting with it and having fun and brainstorming with it. And a lot of people aren't using it at all right now. I kind of been playing around with it. I just like a premise for a show of like a Google type company has some realistic robot who's like, you know, an artificially intelligent AI and it's tasking one of its employees to have it move in with him to observe it and teach it, you know, teach him about the world. And I just would kind of use that as a placeholder and give that description and just ask ChatGPT, write the cold open of the pilot episode. And I tried it with GPT three and a half, with Bing, with you know, ChatGPT with GPT four. It's really good at structuring the scene and getting out everything for the premise and the themes of the show that you have to get out. Like the kind of big picture what needs to be accomplished by the scene. It's very good at doing that. It can be hard to get it to get specific. Like it ends up being very vague and it won't drill down. Like for a joke, you want kind of very like specific, unique language. And I found it a little bit hard to get it to do that. Although it's not not funny. Like it had this bit about how it's like, and the boss was very proud of this robot. And he's like, and the best thing is we designed it to look exactly like one of our most attractive, famous celebrities. And the guy kind of can't recognize it. And he's like, oh, like, what do you mean? Which one? He's like, Ryan Reynolds. It's like, does it? Yes, it looks exactly like Ryan Reynolds. And the guy's like, I I guess so. Which I thought was like really funny. And kind of scary how, how, I mean, I can send you the, at some point, the transcript of the scene it wrote. But I was sort of impressed by that. But yeah, it's good at like the medium level execution and not created all the polish. It's not as polished and as perfect and as like specific and unique as you want. And then I've tried using it on more brainstorming and big idea generation. And it's it's very hard to get it to get specific. Younger writers or writers who aren't great at just like or who are newer and don't quite have the skills down of taking you know, you get an outline for the script, you all work through an outline first, and then you write your draft off of like a paragraph of prose, say, for each scene. But a younger writer doesn't know just how a scene should be structured and laid out and making sure they're accomplishing all of the important plot points and jokes and things you have to thread for later in the outline. It might be really helpful for them to put the paragraph into ChatGPT, get the bones of their scene, and then go in and do what they're good at, which is, you know, adding jokes and making it fit the characters better and kind of polishing it. I do think for a lot of writers that could be very helpful. I would, I do think once you have enough experience, you should be as good as at least the, like better than the current versions at laying out scenes and stuff. It's amazing how quickly we adapt to this technology. That's one of the constant lessons I learned. You know, it's like, Four months ago, none of this existed at all. And now it's like, yeah, it's not quite as good as I am at laying out scenes, but, uh, you know, it can still be helpful in these other ways. 
It was funny how quickly, at least on Twitter, people seem to go like this thing can't put sent coherent sentences together to, I mean, it wrote a paper, but it's like a low level grad, grad student paper. Yeah. I think we should have paid, probably should have like really focused on that for a little longer than we did as a society. It sounds like today, would you call yourself, you said earlier, like some people are really embracing others or and experimenting, maybe even more than embracing others are not doing it at all. It sounds like you are on more the forefront of curious, trying to figure out what it can do for you. So far, it's been less helpful actual work-wise. Like, it hasn't done anything that's actually made me better at my work or made anything usable. I'm more just very curious at just how the models are getting better and what they can do for almost for its own sake. Like, I sort of got very into AI a while ago. I went to that Asilomar conference back in 2016, went to NIPS the following year, and kind of hope trying to be following these things. It's really interesting, but it's not quite good enough. Or maybe I'm not good enough at using it yet, which I think is another part of the equation to get tangible work benefits from it. Yeah, there probably are, especially like narrowly defined tasks that I would expect you would get real value from. For you, I wonder, like, have you gotten to the point yet where you're like, in scene, you know, here's my script. In scene two, I don't really like my second joke. You know, can you give me like 10 alternative ideas for that joke or, you know, things like just general critique, like what, you know, pretend you're the head of the studio and, you know, tell me what you're going to say about this, you know, this draft. Oftentimes those kind of like reflexive, you know, additional layers, I think are where people are sometimes finding the most value right now. Yeah. I mean, I think I haven't tried it for, but I think what would be useful right now, less so for jokes, but the couple needs to figure out a way to get money from the bank. What are five ways they can do it? Or I would imagine for a heist movie, you, you're just asking it like how, like what are the requirements for bank withdrawals? You know, how, what type of ID, what would you have to fake in order to accomplish this crime or something? Like I'm sure for, for twists or for character strategies, it might just be fun to ask it to brainstorm 10 possibilities and maybe one of those is usable. Maybe it sparks something in you or you learn some law or trick or probably knows there's a bunch of like, like the history of frauds or something. Like I'm reading that book, this book called Lying for Money. And it's like, oh, so many of these things would be so useful for many plots of just a strategy a character could do to accomplish something or to fool people. And that actually might be a helpful way to, to use it. Yeah, there's something fascinating there, too, that is kind of a rhyme or another angle on one of the big chat GPT jailbreaks that first came out, you know, within like 24 hours of them initially releasing it. People had found that it would refuse to help you with certain things. Like if you said, you know, tell me how to hotwire a car, it would say to you, you know, whatever, as a large language model, I can't help you with that, essentially. Right. But then people figured out if they framed it in the context of fiction, then they could get the AI, you know, to give them the thing. So the, the setup would be like, you know, Trey and Nathan are two characters in a story and, you know, it's it's a hard, you know, science fiction story or whatever. So we need like absolute detail down to the, you know, the concrete steps of how they're going to hotwire this car go. And then you'd get, you know, all that stuff because you sort of bypass the, it's not exactly a filter, but, you know, you sort of 
get around the the mitigations that they put into the model. Yeah, I, I do wonder as they get better at training out certain jailbreaks, does that make it less useful for some creative tasks? Yeah, people are reporting that that the. I think that this stuff is you know extremely hard to quantify, and there's a certain amount of you know skepticism I think on these claims that is warranted. I mean, for context, I often cite this stat: GPT four, which is so much better than three point five in you know to the degree that like it, the difference is bottom tenth, bottom ten percent to top ten percent on the bar exam. So that's like a you know pretty big difference. It's still only preferred by users by a ratio of seventy to thirty which is, you know, just over two to one. So evaluation and kind of which model did a better job on any given thing, especially the more kind of creative eye of the beholder it becomes is a real challenge. But I am hearing somewhat consistently the report that, yeah, the earlier version was kind of better for creative tasks. It was a little bit more freewheeling. It was a little bit more whatever. And now it kind of seems to be just always pruned back toward normal and toward kind of less offensive. And obviously, you know, comedy can often be about finding the line that's like, you know, approaching, you know, making people uncomfortable, but hopefully landing on the right side of it. So I would imagine that there are just based on all those reports that there are some performance losses in some of the more creative or, you know, edgy type of, you know, queries that you might want to give it. Yeah, I think for I mean, for two, th- two things that makes me think of is the hotwire car example. You may want someone doing a detailed hot wiring of a car in some action movie. And you may not want your model to, to give that information to people, regardless of whether it's fiction or not. So there might just be, you know, a class of things that it would never put into a script because it looks bad if it's giving out that information at all. And then I think, I mean, a lot of just the, the best scripts or movies or TV shows are pretty polarizing. And I don't know how, I guess in the, when they're, you know, reinforcement learning it, they're having people rank, rank different outputs or something. And I just do wonder whether it's probably on the specifics of how they, they choose certain outputs over others and how they penalize others matters whether you get like a a risky output that will be beloved by 10% of users and hated by 90% versus one that's kind of fine with everyone. Yeah, it's very fraught. I think, I mean, they've put a ton of work into that. They're now hiring and this is often done with like partner companies. So it's, as I understand it, it's not so much open AI, you know, doing the direct hiring, but for example, a company called scale AI has a ton of like PhD level evaluator positions open right now. And, you know, it's for chemistry and like accounting and just all these kind of, you know, deep fields. They are finding that they, you know, basically have no choice, but to go up and up and up the, the expertise stack. I don't know if like writers, you know, Comedy writers is uh, is one of those positions. I'll have to go back and look at you know all the job postings to see if there's one like that. I actually don't know how big it is right now, but like you know traditionally there's an army of assistants that read scripts and write coverage on it. So I don't. I mean I don't want to give them any ideas, but I don't know. At some point, are they going to like you know appropriate all these people who are just read scripts and evaluate them for some massive you know fine tuning on creating a Hollywood TV and movie scripts project. Yeah, I, I always kind of come back to, I think we're going to see everything everywhere all at once. You know, the, it, it just seems like everything is kind of working. Everything is somewhat viable. Some things are weird, but even so they can still be kind of interesting. And 
you know, one of the big things I also am kind of expecting is community driven model customization over time. You know, you can kind of imagine a, and obviously these communities, you know, are vast and, you know, they're just extremely diverse. There's tons of them, right? And they all have their little, whatever, whether it's anime or, you know, Fast and Furious or whatever. There's all these communities of people that care passionately about something. And it really seems like a Discord server with not even like a GPT-4, you know, language model, but one of the kind of ones that's recently been open sourced potentially could kind of be shaped into like an infinite writer specific to a particular genre that, you know, I, I kind of, so where, where I sort of imagine this going or where I'm, where I'm a little lost, I guess, in terms of the, the strike demands is like the studio may do one thing or maybe, you know, negotiated with to not do some things or whatever. But then I'm also just like, but the broader world, you know, like people are going to do their Harry Potter fanfic, you know, activity wherever they do it. And it seems quite plausible that with a reinforcement cycle in place, you could get those to the point where they're really good and they could just kind of exist in a space that's totally divorced from typical production. Now, how do you turn those scripts into, you know, full assets? Like that's a obviously a whole other question, but, you know, we're seeing a lot of progress there too, progress or, you know, threat, depending on probably your perspective, but certainly effects and image creation and, you know, video, you know, text to video type of things are coming up extremely hot as well. All right. Well, I guess I'll, first thing I could give you the two big worries of the labor of the, what I see is the worries of the labor dispute. Just to run down the four things that they're asking for are that the NBA covered companies, the studios agree that AI can't write scripts, that AI can't rewrite scripts, that AI can't generate source material that shows or movies are based on. You know, a lot of times you'll option an article or a short story or a comic book or, you know, a book to kind of base your show or movie off of. That's very common. And that the NBA covered material can't be used to train AI models because I guess most of the probably high quality scripts that have been produced or written and not produced, which is, you know, maybe an order of magnitude more than the ones that are produced, are all NBA covered material. But they're also, I think, currently, I assume, owned by all the studios. And they probably, if they just, without this agreement, could just fine tune models on them. But I think the two, the, the big fear is that if this, if these models are kind of a force multiplier, you could have a show might have one or two showrunners, which are the creators or head writers who have the big idea for the show. Maybe one writer could do three shows if it's enough of a force multiplier. And then you have the models generate the first drafts or like decent episode scripts. And then most of the writers become these kind of gig economy, cheap writers who come in and polish it and punch it up. And I think that's the main worry that they see. That seems most relevant if like in the world where there's a medium pace of the capabilities increasing, you know, it gets like a little bit better, can do a little bit more, but not so much better that it's just like, we're all screwed anyway. And, but a little bit better than it is now. I think there's another, the other, the second major fear in this realm is that you can almost use the current versions for like producers or people on the studio side to kind of cheat some of the, the designations. Like it's really writing a pilot script that gets you the created by credit that entitles you to some of the back end. 
I think to some of the other things you were talking about in terms of stuff outside the studio system, I think in terms of video production and stuff, you know, right now it seems obvious that these things are beginning to be able to write. But at some point, the models will start making our compliments a lot cheaper too. So that if you're a writer, you might be able to go off, write your own script and not need the studios or need the infrastructure of actors and directors and composers and just have a model generate your finished product, which is like, I think it's all scary for everyone. <laughs> like stuff's changing very quickly. And I think some of the WGA and the other unions ideas, we need to stick together on this. But I also totally understand that there's a world in a world where these get better much faster at all parts of production, the studios sign on to this agreement and agree not to use any AI in their projects and then just get their lunch eaten by some outside company or or just fans making stuff for themselves. I mean, if it gets really cheap to produce a finished product, a community or yeah, at some point, a person can just say, here's the type of show I want and get a show generated just for them. Yeah, I think I kind of get why it's it's complicated. Also, the NBA is only for three years. So to some extent, whatever promises you get, if things change rapidly, you might not be guaranteed to still have those protections in three years. One very practical question is like, is there any way to police this? I mean, it feels like how is anyone to a certain degree, you guys are maybe working you know, around a single table together in real time. You could spot somebody, you know consulting GPT on the side, but right now we don't really have great like detectors of GPT output or there's, you know, always the possibility that you know, people have tried that best I can tell they're pretty easily broken by either they just don't work that well in the first place, or you can like make a, you know, sort of superficial edit to what was generated and then it's no longer detected. Or sometimes you get false positives, right? I've seen examples where people are like, I swear to God, I wrote this and this thing thinks it's generated by GPT. So, you know, these standards seem like everybody has some incentive to cheat and nobody has any good enforcement mechanism anyway. If someone who hasn't been writing at all and as a producer is suddenly just pumping out content now, it might be pretty obvious as people come up or people are breaking in and as the technology gets better, it's probably really hard. It's probably really hard to tell. If the models are very effective and really genu start generating value, how cheap is it going to be for you to use something that gives you like a multi-million dollar movie idea? And right, do you know what I mean? Like, it'll be so, will these models start cost, will the fine-tuned versions of these that are that helpful start costing more? Or is it going to continue to be it's so cheap for some producer to just be somehow pulling, you know, millions of dollars worth of value out of it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I generally think everything's going to be cheap in the future. The models are getting cheaper dramatically quickly, like 97% price reduction, you know, from eight months ago to today for kind of equivalent models. Now, of course, we've added a new high end as well, where basically it's the same price as before, but you get a lot more for that money. And for both medicine and law, I was able to sit down and have pretty much like 45 minute, robust, fully coherent consult that I would say rivaled 
the actual human that I, you know, worked with in each case. And so one of my big takeaways from that is just like, I think the price of everything is kind of going down, you know, cheap expertise seems to be a big part of the future. And I see this moment with the writers guild is so interesting, because I'm honestly kind of surprised that like, the lawyers haven't come out with a, you know, a strong stance on this yet. Doctors have actually been much more positive on it than I would have expected. On the art side, you know, I kind of think there might be a flip. I'll try this one on you. We do video creation for small businesses and it's all AI driven process. We have a great creative team and, you know, their whole role and way of working is kind of changing. But it does seem like there's huge value in curation still. You can generate a ton of ideas. I don't see a great prospect for us getting to the point where you ask GPT-5 for like one hit sitcom idea and it just delivers, you know, every time. And it's like, yeah, boom, bona fide hit. Seems more likely that it's like, you can get a lot of pretty good ideas, but what's really going to resonate? You know, what's really worth developing? What seems like it might be plausible is this kind of like tastemaker role. Yeah, curation. It seems like it becomes where a lot of the value is. What do you think about that? This sounds so standard, but being a differentiated brand, I think will be a way to keep capturing value, whether you come up with some great ideas yourself or you're just the person who can just knows what people are going to like and can recommend it to them. Yeah, I do think there will be a lot of value in people that are very good at curating, whether it's a smaller number of people that are massively popular and well-known as good curators, or it's more like you know, on Instagram, how people have their influencers who they trust, and you kind of get this like more decentralized, a lot of different people recommending things and you stumble upon the people whose taste you trust. But yeah, curation, I mean, the, the thing is, there is a pretty, when it comes to curating scripts, it's either it's very hard or just humans also aren't that high of a bar. Like, you know, uh, until recently, the networks would would combine, you know, buy 250 ideas every year to put 15, 20 shows on the air. If it becomes much cheaper to make the content overall, then you, you almost get to like a, in the limit, it's like a TikTok thing where you can generate so much content and just see what sticks with people and iterate on it. Yeah. And the algorithm is certainly very good at surfacing new little bits of interest in the feed. That's for sure. And I do, it does seem like there will be a period where as you were saying, the symbiosis where the humans and the models work very well together, it feels like we're almost not quite at the level where the models are generating a ton of help. And then I wonder how long that window will last where the symbiosis is really that helpful. Or if it's like chess where there was, you know, a few years where everyone's like, man, it's just human plus machine. That's the way that's the way to get the best results. And a few years later, it's the human can't really add much. I cite that fairly often myself because I, I do think that is likely to prove a mirage in a lot of domains. You know, there, it feels like a cope right now in a lot of places that people are kind of like, oh, but, you know, the, the, this is really it's really together is where we're really going to, you know, and I don't I don't know. It doesn't seem like a safe assumption anyway. Yeah, it feels it's just like very attractive as almost just like a storytelling device. It's always like this versus this. And then in the end, oh, they work together and that's the best result. Yeah. Nature doesn't always work that way. <laughs> whatever whatever might make a good happy ending. Yeah. Nature is full of non-happy endings, unfortunately. When you were saying that 
you know, you're not just going to ask it for a hit and it'll give you a hit. So a few weeks ago, I wrote this prompt to try to see if it could just come up with a hit TV idea. And it was like, I wanted something kind of timeless. And so I started with like, you know, it's the year 2044. And, but 20 years ago, this show came out that just like changed the game and had rich characters and is like the most beloved show of the past 20 years. Can you please write the magazine review of it from when it came out in the fall of 2024? And it didn't do the best job, but I, what I thought was funny was because I set the vibe up of the years 2044, all the suggestions were sci-fi. Anyway, that's just like a random example of how the details of how you use it and like, oh, it's very vibe focused. Like it takes a lot of cues from the vibe you're putting out there. And if you're trying to get one thing specific from it and give it like this timeless perspective, but you use the phrase, it's the future. And then it's in this mode where everything's sci-fi. What I take away from that is I think just writers are really well positioned probably to be effective users of language models. Maybe it's too early to even know, but do you think that writers are not even really aware of this yet or hostile to it because they feel like it's sort of an assault on the craft? Or is it more of a like, hey, this could be cool, but like, it's definitely not going to work out to our economic advantage. So we got to fight it. You know, even if it might be cool, we kind of have to fight it out of self-interest. Like, what do you think is the is the vibe that is kind of driving this demand as it exists today? Yeah, I think there's like a real diversity of reactions. I think, I mean, on the, the picket signs, at least the things that make it to the picket signs seem to be dismissive that it's just really bad at writing, but the studios don't care about the quality of the content. So they're just going to use it because it's so much cheaper, it's worth it. Then I think there's some writers who see it as a very real threat and just think we need to fight, it's existential and you need to really fight tooth or nail for the survival of all of our livelihoods and careers. And then I think there are some of the writers who are, my one good friend, maybe it's because he's a drama writer. So they, people who work more on sci-fi and got into writing because they're fascinated by ideas like this, I think are, I mean, I'm sure they're all afraid that it gets so much better, we can't contribute as much, but are excited to play with it and see how it works and see what it's good at and what's not good at. Yeah, and I do think you're playing with it. Sometimes you see a little quirk or it surprises you with something like that Ryan Reynolds bit was like, oh my gosh, that's like really funny. It's kind of cool seeing those sparks where it exceeds your expectations. Yeah, sparks of AGI. You, you've probably seen this, but that was the title of the Microsoft paper that basically reported the same. Of all those, it sounds to me like the first one sounds ultimately least tenable. I mean, I'm sure that this is kind of like the standard thing, right? Like whether it's the lawyers, the doctors, the writers, anybody can sort of for now take this position that, oh, the you know, it's not very good. It's substandard, you know, and for the the patient or, you know, the, the client, the defendant, you know, the, the viewing audience, like we have to protect the integrity of the product. That to me seems like it's ultimately going to be least defensible because even if we're not going to see show writer GPT that can do it all, there's no way it can't help some, you know, in various contexts and speed things up or give ideas or what have you. So I guess if I'm advising the strikers, I would probably focus on the, the latter concerns of just like, you know, I think there's also a good question of do we want to seed control of culture? You know, even if it's good, there's like a question of, you know, is this wise even if the, even if it's funny at first, you know, are we wise to 
let such an unknown alien force, you know, have such a big influence on our collective thoughts and shared meme space and all that sort of thing. Like I can see an argument that it would not be a good idea. Certainly. Yeah. Well, I just, one thing I should say on the first thing you were saying is I, I'm pretty sure the union is in favor of writers being allowed to use it as a tool. So they, they don't want to block writers themselves from, from reaping, you know, some benefits from bouncing ideas off of reusing it. But on the second thing, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I'm sure we've seen it to some extent with social media where you do a bit lose control of the, the culture generating process or whatever you, you call it. And it's not really like a democratic thing. It's just sort of the accidents of the algorithm or, you know, in TikTok, it's literally, a, you don't know what's happening. It's just all this content's being generated everywhere in the world and things are being bubbled up to you. Yeah, it might not be a good thing. It seems like a very hard thing to coordinate, to take deliberate control over what, how the culture will, will progress and evolve. I mean, one way the, you know, the union covered studios are sort of like, they have one of the only walls to try and maintain some control in their garden. It's because they can work with all the actors and all the directors that people and, and writers that people like, but yeah, if, if these models get much better, I'm not sure how much longer uh, anyone would be able to, like if anyone in the world can be generating the stories they want, or as you said, the different communities, I think it'll be difficult to have any deliberate, like macro control over where that's going. And then it's an interesting question, if all these communities are using these models, how much is it the humans directing it? And how much is it, you know, bias based on how the models they're using? And do you see any possibility for an agreement that could align studio and writers, at least on this AI point? I mean, obviously there's going to be negotiations about, you know, percentages and those are, I assume, you know, going to continue to be contentious, but could you envision a sort of AI standard or, you know, guidelines or something that might make everybody happy? Well, I first should say that beyond the things I sent you and the those four points I mentioned that the guild is arguing for, the, as the general membership, we don't have a ton of insight into the specifics. I think, I guess it makes sense. Like they can't just have, let everyone know which points of it they really care about and which they're willing to trade for other things. So I really don't speak for the negotiation committee or the union as a whole. And that being said, I'm really not sure. I mean, I, I I think like maybe there's a world where it's it's some protections against the cheapest versions of studios or producers trying to steal some of the ownership when the writers are putting in the, the bulk of the work to develop things. One of the other big demands is for minimum staffing on shows so that a lot of the streaming, the writer rooms have gotten very small because, you know, it's an eight episode order. You have a writer's room open for a shorter amount of time. They brainstorm all the outlines and the ideas. And then the head writers or the showrunners just write all the episodes themselves. And there's kind of a synergy between the two demands, because if you have minimum number of writers per show, it, we might, I see where we care, we're less worried that the AI is going to kind of, you know, destroy the middle of writing jobs. And yeah, and, the, and AI becomes a bigger part of it, but the writers are have ownership over some of the product from it and, and kind of we all benefit. 
Here's one other theory for you. This is very speculative, but I'm very curious as to your take on it. Obviously, a lot of people jump to, okay, everything's going to be cheap, but it's also going to be hard to make a living. We need some sort of new social contract at like the highest level, right? We need a new universal basic income or something like that. So everybody can kind of relax knowing that you don't have, you know, you can eat even if you're not gainfully employed, right? That would be a, you know, seemingly a nice enhancement for the future. And then I guess people then start to worry like, well, well, what am I going to do? You know, how am I going to use my time? Are people going to find fulfillment and all that? And it seems like to some degree, maybe this is romanticizing, but it seems like to some degree, the writers kind of have one of those jobs that people like actually would want to have or would imagine themselves doing, even if they didn't have to work to get paid. So is there a framing of this that's like, once this all happens, then we can all be writers and maybe we won't make a ton of money from it, but we could sort of have needs taken care of and then everybody can kind of you know, explore their own creativity. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend about if you picture the long-term utopian future where artificial intelligence can fill, could on its own just make something, but then there's room for you to kind of just do whatever part of that you want to do. If you're a writer, you can write a script and have the rest generated by the AI. If you're an actor, you can, you know, give your performances and have everything else, have the scripts filled in. If you're a director, you can get the script and and give feedback on the performances. And I mean, there's there's a world where it's, you know, like I'm very fortunate. I get a very fun job. I just get to be creative and, you know, have just fun discussions and make jokes with like really smart, talented people. And it would be nice in a world where everyone can kind of have an experience like that. Yeah, people could form groups and work on scripts together and use the AI to fill in the stuff they can't do. And because right now it's just very expensive to make something. And so it makes a high bar for, it really limits the number of people that get to be creative every day. And in the long term, it's tough to see where, in terms of livelihood, who knows where the value gets captured in the sea where everyone is contributing something different, but everything's getting so cheap. But yeah, I, when you say that, when you paint that picture, it, it to me, it seems very nice. You know, there's obviously been much attention focused to the importance of diversity and different viewpoints in, you know, any sort of collaborative work setting. I've never felt that as viscerally as I have when we're trying to get the AI to do something. It's so often the case that I'm like, well, I kind of got it to here, but I don't really like the outputs. And then, you know, somebody who has a different educational background or any kind of background, different perspective can often tweak my prompt to, you know, make it a little sharper in this particular way, you know, that can, and I've seen it go both directions where somebody will come and be like, what we need is a defined rubric and that will make this work and that can work. And then other times I'll, you know, somebody who's much more on the creative side compared to me will be like, what we need to do is inspire this to like take on a particular style. And that can also really unlock a lot of value. So there is almost a where I'm leaving this is I almost feel like there is a writer's room, you know, with your minimum staffing requirements, perhaps negotiated by the union that becomes a, you know, a sufficiently kind of diverse team to take maybe full advantage of some of the AI tools, which at least I really do struggle to do totally solo. I very consistently do find better results if I workshop, you know, prompts and workflows with others.
Yeah. I mean, a lot of times we a script comes in, we all read the same script and we all give our notes to it. Like, oh, this should be more in this style and this character should be talking more like this and this part doesn't make sense. And it really helps having a bunch of different eyes on the same script to throw their thoughts in. I mean, a lot of using the prompting feels like giving notes in a writer's room. I'd probably again go back to the domains where there is a standard of care or something equivalent as compared to domains where there's just not and, you know, everything is kind of its own unique snowflake output. I think it is very plausible that even GPT-4, like I don't know that, you know, that it needs to be a, a next generation model even, but just maybe refinements to this one can get you to the point where like you should be able to approach it naively with just an earnest concern, you know, whether it's medical or whatever it may be and have it kind of, you know, I think it makes sense to aspire if you're the model creator to say like, we don't want people to have to get all nuanced in that moment. We just want to be able to ask their question in their own words, whatever. But if you are trying to engage it as a creative partner, then yeah, I don't really see how that's going to go away anytime soon. Right. I mean, even if you were, you know, trying to delegate to a human or your, your, you know, your human writing partner, there's going to be, you have to like, you have to give something to get something back, you know, that's of any relevance or interest. So I do think there is at least a subdomain of prompt engineering that I don't really see how it goes away. It is not that different sometimes from prompting humans who you're collaborating with. It's getting more and more similar all the time. That's for sure. How much, when you say like the standard of care, how much for medical and law do you think it's so much more effective because the success is such a clear thing you're hitting for? And how much do you think it's just like areas where that depend on a vast literature, it's just going to overperform on? Because medicine, there's just so much and no humans keeping it all in their head at once. Whereas if you're trying to solve a story problem or find a twist, you almost need no outside literature. It's just you know, pure thinking. I think both definitely matter. We did, I think a, a prior guest put this really well, the founders of Ought, which is a research assistant. They really emphasize that for certain tasks, there just is no success criteria. And if you can't engineer one, then you're kind of in a tough spot. Now you can ultimately like measure whether people laugh or not, but, and we're so early in that. I mean, I think OpenAI, they obviously haven't disclosed it, but they have done deals with data providers. We don't know who, we don't know what they paid, you know, we don't know what they got, but the, it's pretty clear, I think, that they have done deals with data providers. Seeing, you know, for probably multiple reasons, but seeing that the writing's on the wall, that there's going to be legal challenges, they want to be able to kind of lift the uh, curtain and be like, guess what? We're all legal. Those deals are going to be a huge factor as well. Stability AI is kind of trying to position themselves as like, we'll make the model that's just for you using all your content, like the Disney model, right? They're going to go to Disney and I don't know if this has or hasn't happened, but there, somebody's definitely going to go to Disney and be like, you have all this stuff, you know, and, and it's probably enough to make something that could really work for you. But only you, you know, can allow us to do, first of all, even give us access and, you know, legally allow us to do that. And then, of course, you're going to own it. So there's kind of maybe more of like a service business model there in model creation. Mosaic is doing a great business in this type of thing as well. But I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I'm, I'm, it's a great surprise to connect with someone who's both in the writing world and uh, very clearly paying a lot of attention to AI. And uh, you've got a 
got a great read on the current situation. So I really appreciate the time. This was really fun. I will say on the, just the last thing you were saying, I do think one of the things the union is fighting for is we have some rights to how our writing is reused. Right now, it's, you know, they're demanding to not be able to train stuff on our material. But to what you're saying, I wonder if there is the writers enjoying some of the upside. Yeah, potentially so. But um, yeah, that's no, this has been so fun. And uh, yeah, I'm going to definitely going to uh, be listening to more of this podcast. Well, that's flattering. Trey Colmer, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Sophia Lear, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm excited to just kind of learn about you and, you know, how AI is starting to present itself in your life and work. You're a Hollywood writer, you know, maybe just give us a little bit of introduction into what that looks like. And then, you know, obviously we can get into the WGA strike and the AI related demands and, and all that good stuff. I was currently a co-executive producer on Ghosts, which is a sitcom on CBS. And I've been doing mostly network TV shows for a while, which is sort of outside of the experience of a lot of the guild and is a little bit sort of separated from a lot of the issues that are the guild is striking about right now. But yeah, I've been, I worked on the show New Girl and then a lot of other shows that less people have seen. And, you know, being in the writer's room is just one of the things that I really love. And it's just so fun to be a part of like a comedy writer's room. So yeah, I usually have been these sort of 22 episode network shows. They're nine months of being in a writer's room from coming up with the episodes to writing them to punching them up and seeing them through production and editing. And yeah, it's been a it's been a blast. It's you know, bring us then to the present day. I know that there are multiple different issues that are important to the strike. How important do you think these AI issues are, you know, as compared to things that would be, you know, presumably considered kind of more core, like how certain revenues are going to be, you know, current revenues are going to be just divvied up? I think we don't know, really. I mean, as with AI and like so many ways, it just feels so nascent in terms of what the implications are exactly. For me, personally, I feel like if AI can really do a writer's job as well or better than humans, I don't think that there's anything that we can sort of put into contractual language or kind of negotiate to change. So in terms of the strike, I... I don't know. I personally feel that humans will always have something to offer in terms of writing scripts and telling stories and jokes also, I think, is something that is particularly difficult for AI to understand or to do. But obviously, I could be 100% incorrect about that. Yeah, I was pretty deep in it, you know, as of last summer, doing all kinds of different task automation type things and, you know, building apps. And then GPT-4, you know, came online and it was like, whoa, this is really next level. And it kind of changed my framing because I guess implicitly I, I had been thinking, you know, it's probably going to level off or if I even had that, you know, fully consciously in my head. But it was like it was clearly like not, you know, rivaling me in anything. 
it was, it was a, you know, very much a tool that with some elbow grease, I could get to do stuff for me. And then GPT-4 is like, man, it's a lot closer. So people are still, I think, pretty divided on, you know, is that going to kind of level out, you know, just under, and I think this would be in some ways like an ideal place for us to hang out for a while where the AIs kind of max out at like just under human level. If we could get something like that, it would be like, you know, we could have AI, you know, powered doctor, you know, type experiences that could be extremely valuable, extremely good, you know, apply kind of standard practice, but yet we wouldn't like lose track of, you know, lose control of the future to like AI scientists and probably similarly in culture, you know, there could be a, maybe a, a happy place where, you know, you get a great writing assistant, you know, AI writing assistant, but it's never like truly breaking through to this kind of brilliant next level, you know, deeply resonant storytelling that, you know, the best, you know, people in their best moments are able to create. I don't know where we're going to be on that. Honestly, if I had to guess, I would say it does seem likely just given how far it's come already that it, that it probably goes even further, but it may not, you know, the argument would be like, you're limited by the training data. How are you ever going to get smarter than the smartest stuff in your training data? You know, maybe that just can't happen. And we kind of max out. To your point. I, yeah. I mean, it, it seems sort of silly to think that like, we'll always be slightly better, but I mean, just imagining like, you know, if you had like a script that's written by AI and it's computer generated set and computer generated actors, let's say, like, could that be as moving or impactful if you sort of know that it's all a simulation? I don't like, I don't know. I don't know. But I think there's something about it being art does that change the question at all, you know, in terms of like, is it good or, or does it have the same impact? Do you know what I mean? Like versus just other tasks that are sort of like they are done. And that's the only thing that is necessary for them to be complete. Yeah. We're very early in trying to sort all that out. You know, there've been some of these stories where somebody will enter an AI generated piece of visual art into a contest. And there've been a couple instances of like, the, you know, the AI art winning the contest. And then you've got this big reveal after the fact and kind of a lot of gnashing of teeth because it's like, you know, it's kind of hard to argue that, you know, it must have been competitive, you know, when blinded, you know, people accepted it and seemed to enjoy it, even to the point of like awarding it, you know, prizes. But then when the reveal happens, they feel like often, you know, quite upset about that. Partly maybe just because they feel like they've been, you know, sort of used. But I think it also runs a little bit deeper than that. And, and it's kind of like, it's not just that you kept that secret from us. It's like the whole thing is kind of, you know, bothersome to people for, you know, I think pretty understandable reasons. How much of that kind of discussion or awareness would you say is kind of the norm now in, in like a Hollywood writer's room? Is this something that you guys are like talking about in the writer's room a lot over the last few months? I mean, not on a deep level. I think there's been sort of like some playing around with it. I mean, it's like some sort of naughty, but very intriguing thing, you know? And yeah, I first was like made aware of chat GPT from a writer in the writer's room, like 
being like, you know, my brother like asked the chat GPT for movie prompts and gave it little ideas. And then it like fleshed out the whole story and like, they're pretty good. And I mean, currently I think it's very good at, yeah, sort of like log line level story ideas. And so I don't know, there's been some like messing around with it, seeing what it can do, seeing what it's good at, seeing what it's not good at. There's always so much like time in the writer's room where you're like, you know, it's like 12 people and you're just like, what, what could a episode be about? What could happen? And it just feels like you just have no ideas. And so I think anything where, you know, it's sort of like, oh, what is... (laughs) Does the robot have any like ideas? I mean, I think that's always just gonna. I'm kind of really curious as to how people are feeling. Like, is this a strategic defense of an economic position? Is it a kind of defense of you know a certain sanctity or purity of you know the craft? You know, say you have to have a showrunner that's human. They often in writer's rooms, you just like sort of run out, you easily feel just sort of burned out of just raw material. And you'll send off writers, usually lower level writers of just like, just generate like some story areas, just like generate some just raw material that then we can kind of like dig into. And I don't know, I could sort of imagine like, at least it's seeming very helpful to writers that you could have like AI sort of like, okay, what are like 50 story areas that you could do? And, but to me, you're always going to need that, like, especially comedy writers rooms, just the conversation and the alchemy and the feeding off of each other and the sort of like unexpected things that happen when you're working with other people So, you know, I think that to me, sort of fundamentally having some tool that kind of can just generate material that then you can sort of work with sounds at least nominally helpful. But that also I believe in that, you know, it really makes a difference when people are talking to each other and generating things together. And what comes out of that is always more exciting and interesting than just some one working on their own that, you know, that's sort of like predicated on some idea I have of quality or what's good. And if it doesn't matter that something reached that level of quality, you know, it's possible that companies just, and I think that's a little bit what we've seen, like leading up to the strike with just the conditions for writers not being that great. It's like, well, what is the bar in terms of quality and maybe just, I personally feel like you get better stuff out of people talking and working together, but I could be wrong and be, you know, the companies could easily just not care. And it's just sort of like, okay, it's like a slightly better cookie that you're making than the cookie I think is like a better quality, but people are going to buy it. So, you know, what do, what do they care about it? I think there's a lot of sort of existential fear in the writer's guild right now. And so I think AI is like a very much a part of that. So, you know, I think there is worry about that. I I just 
I tend to feel like, you know, if this was a phase of time where we got to be writers, I, you know, I'm glad to have been a part of it and I need to get some more like skills I can market. I don't know. It just feels so too large to be something to sort of fret about or be concerned about. People have this notion that there's like, you know, the studios don't really care. They'll feed crap to the audience. And, you know, if they can save a dollar on the writers, you know, either by just, you know, having fewer of them or, you know, screwing them whichever which way or replacing them with AI, you know, they don't really care about any of that. They'll just do it and, you know, continue to turn stuff out and, you know, the audience will accept it. That's a little tough for me to reconcile with my just general sense that like content is fiercely competitive. You know, there's like infinite alternatives. It's like the one of the most liquid markets that we're in. It's I, I have a hard time imagining how the studio is like could end up in a spot where they like don't care about the quality of the content. But and writers are very prone to feel this way. But one part is that, you know, I think sometimes writers at least often feel that the writing aspect of something being good is sort of overlooked. And there's like the Lord of the Rings show that's out now that was sort of like a real dud. And I think part of that is just not given enough time to write, not like just being well thought out as a story. And sometimes I think there's, you know, oh, it's Lord of the Rings and it's going to look really cool. And underestimating the fact that like if the story isn't good or fleshed out it's really gonna like people are gonna register it as bad and not even quite know why so i wonder you know like with with the rise of like avatars and like deep fake type stuff you know are we gonna see an actor you know guild strike coming up soon or you know there's all all this like post-production you know amazingness Adobe is just like rolling out insane updates left and right, you know, where you can just saw a demo yesterday, you can segment an image and like replace the floor, replace the wall, replace the ceiling, you know, replace the guy add a car. I mean, it's like, whoa, and this is taking, you know, seconds to minutes, and comes out, you know, to my eye looking like very good. So I guess is there sort of a similar, you know, fear going on? Is there enough kind of cross-pollination, you know, do you think that there's ultimately going to be like a solidarity across like all these different, you know, groups that, you know, contribute to the the creation of content? How do you think that kind of plays out? Because it's happening, you know, as you, I'm sure you are aware, seemingly at every stack of the content, at every layer of the content creation stack. Yeah, I think, you know, the deep fake, I'm sure that you can have fake actors pretty soon, if not already i'll be curious to see if if the actors guild if sag strikes they haven't been on strike in a long time directors seem pretty set they say i might have to get into directing because that seems like a pretty they there's just very strict i mean the guild is very strong they have very strict rules about that you have to have a director and it does seem like something that's sort of I mean, I think directing is a managerial role in a lot of ways, like you're just sort of head of the production. So that seems, I don't know if the Directors Guild has similar alignment with the other guilds. Yeah, and in terms of like, I mean, obviously CGI was a huge thing and just the technology of 
of how things look. It'll be fascinating to see what happens. These you know disruptions have happened before, right? At one point in time, you know, you wanted to shoot Ben Hur. You had to set up an actual, you know, actual horses, you know, actual chariots. You know, there's no other way to do it. Now, you know, you don't really have to. You don't have to necessarily visit the hippodrome in person to, you know, to create a similar scene. And so we sort of survived that. And a lot of people are kind of like, yeah, it'll happen again. You know, people talk about bank tellers like, oh, when the ATM came out, you know, people were sort of, there goes the bank teller. And what is instead happened is there's actually more bank tellers because, you know, it became more profitable to run a bank. And so people opened up a lot more banks. There's like, there's way more bank branches than there used to be. And so there's more jobs and they don't count as much money, but they like, you know, sell you mortgages or whatever. It's a pretty pat story at this point. Big question, obviously, is like, does that pattern hold this time? And, you know, it's really hard to say, like, do we just get, you know, another 10x or 100x more content, you know, that all has kind of awesome special effects and, you know, is made much more cheaply with smaller teams, but, you know, nevertheless, like those are jobs and there's just more, you know, more content creation happening. Or is there some sort of, you know, genuine kind of displacement this time around because it's like, you know, people can only watch so many movies and, or, you know, shows like their time, it obviously, you know, remains the, the one resource that's not changing. And, you know, maybe there is, you know, is there, what could we even do with like a hundred X kind people are already watching, you know, eight, nine hours of video a day, you know, they can't really move that, that much. So like, what can we really do with a hundred times more content? You know, is it going to be that people just have that much more choice or they get, you know, that much more tailored stuff? You could even imagine, you know, individual personalization, obviously at some point, but yeah, I don't know. The crystal ball gets, gets pretty foggy there. You could imagine that everybody is just sort of watching the things that are tailored to them. And this idea that part of TV or part of movies is a sharedness to it is just an idea that will, you know go away. I personally think that something would be lost, but it already sort of has been. I mean, you know, they're just the sort of show that everybody success, you know, but it feels nice to me when it's like succession and you get to talk about it. And any other thoughts on your mind or topics you want to cover? Anything that can make jobs done cheaper at the same like quality is like business is always going to reward that AI should just like cure cancer and do stuff like that and let let us keep writing stories. That's my pitch to AI if it's listening. I'll pass that along. Sophia Lear, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Garrett Job, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Cool. Thanks for having me. We are talking in the midst of a Hollywood writer strike. And you are party to that. So I guess maybe just for starters, can you kind of give us a little bit of context on who you are and, uh, you know, how this whole thing has come about in, in recent weeks? Of course. So I'm a TV and film writer. I've been in the Writers Guild since 2012. I've worked in comedy and drama. And my the last show I wrote for was a show called Suits, a legal show with famously of Meghan Markle fame. And in the last, you know, this is going into our third week of striking. And I think, you know, for, for listeners, one, one thing that I find super interesting and lucky is that, you know, we're talking about how chat GPT and other large language models could be used to sort of take our jobs. 
I think we're very lucky that this negotiation cycle happened when it did. If ChatGPT or these large language models had been released a year ago or two years ago, I think the studios would have already implemented them and we wouldn't have had this moment to get out ahead of the, the conversation. I think we would be way behind it. So just pure luck. I think we're we're talking about these issues now and we have some voice in the matter rather than being immediately phased out. How would you articulate to, you know, somebody outside the industry kind of what you view to be really at the heart of the issue? The Writers Guild position is that AI should not be used to generate literary material of any kind. So a studio couldn't ask a large language model for a short story about time travel and then bring that short story to a writer and ask them to adapt that piece of intellectual property as a, a television show or a movie. We also don't want it to generate drafts of, of scripts that then a writer could be employed or engaged at a discounted rate to sort of um, edit it or punch it up, as we say. It seems like from, you know, this is our dystopian, but I think also realistic view is that the studios see a future in Hollywood that involves as little human contribution as possible. And I think for, this is complex, obviously, but I think for professionals working in a field that is centered around telling human stories, I think we find that fundamentally, I don't think any, any writer is opposed to change, but we think that it's uh, the approach that the studios have, obviously, is geared towards profit, uh, less towards telling enriching human stories and phasing, phasing out an entire workforce. It's obviously something we want to prevent. We've seen a trend and we've connected that with the emergence of these large language models and we can, we can very easily see how these studios would, would use that technology to continue that trend to a pretty logical endpoint. Is this something that is happening now? Like are people, are there any examples of, you know, shows that have been, that people have tried to kind of assign the creator role to an AI or just not have one? So, so there's been some rumors and I'm not sure if they've been corroborated, corroborated or not, that right now, many of these studios are, because obviously there, there is some copyright law that I just don't think has been worked out at all yet. On this, it's so cutting edge, but what the studios sounds like they're doing is uh, feeding works, literary works in the public domain into, I think they may have their own proprietary models at this point, and asking these models to generate feature length scripts for books that are in the public domain. And they might be saying, make, you know, make the Counts of Monte Cristo into a modern day female-driven action thriller, go. Have you gone in and played around with this stuff? Like, what has your kind of chat GPT, you know, personal exploration looked like? Yeah, I, I've used it extensively. I, first, just as a, as a lay person, I just want to understand the technology as much as, as I can for, for non-working purposes. But I have, I have started to use it a fair amount in my own personal writing. I would say I use it almost as a writer's assistant because I'm, especially, you know, now during the strike, I'm, I'm working 
alone from home, I find it's great at helping me organize, keep track of my ideas and use as a sounding board that I sort of consider it to be like if I was employing somebody just out of college and I wasn't asking them for pitches on ideas. I was just asking them to hear me, recite back with clarity what they heard me say, hold on to certain ideas so that I can you know, bring them back at a moment's notice. So um, what I'm, I'm, I'm outlining a, a new pilot episode for, for a, a new concept of the television show right now. And I will just talk to it about the characters, their relationship, their dynamic, or say the outline of the episode. And I'll just sort of say to, to the model, you know, keep this outline at hand. So if I want to make changes to it, you can just spit it back out to me. And if I say, oh, actually, I don't want that thing to happen in act three that then rippled into act four, can you remove those two scenes and replace them with this and this? That's sort of how I'm using it right now. And I would say it's been it's been pretty useful and also more unreliable in some ways that I wasn't expecting. But I've sort of drawn a moral line in that I'm not asking it for pitches or ideas. That's me personally. I've sort of developed a code with myself. But I've also asked it more on an experimental level to generate ideas just to see what it's capable of. And I've found that almost without exception, it reverts to pretty cliche stuff. Even when I spent a lot of time trying to explain how novel concepts are arrived at and trying to coax it to come up with new stuff, it still feeds me super cliche ideas. So I don't know if I'm missing out on anything novel by maintaining that personal code. Yeah, interesting. Is that you're using, it sounds like ChatGPT is kind of the the main... Yeah, GPT-4. Yeah. I will generate an outline for this pilot episode that I have, right? Um, Broken down into acts. And then under each act, I'll have maybe four or five major scenes, right? And I'll type two or three sentences for each scene. And this will be maybe under a thousand words. And I'll have this, I'll I'll put this into uh, the the chat and I'll say, keep this outline handy. And anytime I type outline, spit this back exactly as I wrote it to me so I can make changes. And And then make changes as I dictate. What I've been noticing at first it was subtle and then it sort of started to like, you know, get this weird feedback loop. It would start spitting me back the outline and then it would it would make subtle changes or omissions. So it would like subtly change the profession of my main character or forget a scene that I had put in there. I mean, I you know, I understand that like, for example, these things aren't great at doing math, right? At least right now. Uh, something that's lagging behind. It's interesting to me that you're asking it simply to just regurgitate exactly what we what, what I put in maybe three exchanges earlier, and it's failing at, at that. And it sort of actually added an extra headache for me because you go through nine or 10 or 12 iterations of an outline, and then you realize, wait a second, where's that scene that I had imagined five hours ago that I sort of relied on this thing to keep track of, and now it's gone, and now I have to scroll back up thousands and thousands of words 
diminishes the, the how useful the tool is for me. I'm still using it in this way, but it was just an interesting thing that I noticed that I was not expecting. Yeah, I wonder if there, there might be some techniques that could help you with that. One of the really common ones is known as the format trick. And you basically sort of say, use this format. And there's some other, you know, you can kind of, again, they're very flexible, right? So you can kind of experiment and find your own, you know, format rhythm. But I tend to do things like use this format and then I'll have kind of deliberately sort of odd tags sometimes like i'll use kind of an xml you know html like tag to be like you know script scene one you know within brackets and then kind of an end tag below that and then kind of dressing that up a little bit more like oddly structured but telling it use this format at a minimum i would think you should be able to get consistent structure back like i would i would not expect that you should see scenes you know getting dropped what I, what I would guess might be happening there is also you could just be a little bit more explicit about some things. You know, you, I always also recommend positive framing instead of negative framing. So sometimes people will say like, do not change the structure of the outline or whatever. And sometimes I think the later models are getting better with this too, but definitely have seen in the past problem with negation where, you know, it's kind of the I forget the, the don't think of the white rhino or whatever. And then it's like, all you can think of is the white rhino. There's a little bit of that effect with the, the model. So sometimes I recommend to people, instead of saying, don't do X, like say in a positive way, what you do want it to do. Like always, you must always, you know, return exactly the structure and may modify, you know, these aspects. I, I bet you can get over that hump to at least get kind of the consistency of structure that you want back simple things too like might be interpreted a little differently than you mean them so if you say like rewrite this script or whatever like exactly what it's me you know you may be thinking in your head like a certain definition of rewrite and it may have a little more expansive definition of rewrite so anyway we can workshop this separately i think maybe folks will find this interesting but i bet there is at least to, to the point where you'd get the right number of scenes you know back i think you could get there what's interesting is that all of us as writers have voices of other writers in our heads. So when I'm writing something, I'm trying to, whether it's consciously or not, I'm trying to kind of write like Jesse Armstrong, the creator of Succession, or Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad. Like those people's voices are definitely in my head. And obviously there is, it's an interesting question. Do, by invoking David Ogilvy or by invoking Vince Gilligan, and using it in chat in the chat GPT prompt, what what is that artist owed, if anything, for their contribution to the to the voice that the model you know has in its head? And we haven't litigated that yet. I'm, I'm sure you've talked to some people like that, but it's a it's another big question that I think a lot of writers, especially the high profile ones, are are worried about, which is. They've worked their entire careers. They've been extremely lucky and they're extremely talented just to have their voice, their unique voice, you know, automated. But I think the other scary thing is that for the, the, the idea of new voices coming along, I'm not sure, you know, if we, if we enter this near future where most content, most written content for TV or films are written by or generated by, by a model. 
I'm not sure we're going to see new voices come. I think we're going to see sort of this endless whirlpool of regurgitation of what, what's already out there. So I think that's just a, it's a fear and a, and a unique question about who is owed what when you say, right, like David Ogilvy. I don't know if you have a take on that. I don't feel like I have the final answer. I do think it is definitely a fair question. I, you know, what definitely doesn't cut it in my mind is a notion that is like, when you do hear this stuff, you'll hear people say, well, people really do the same thing. You know, and you kind of said a version of that, right? Like we all, everything's a remix and, you know, we're all taking inspiration from everywhere. And, you know, so therefore it's no big deal if the AI does the same. I don't buy that argument at all because I think, you know, one of the most important things to keep in mind about these technologies is that they are fundamentally alien. You know, they are not, they're not human. <laughs> you know, they, they do, I mean, people go the other error on the other side of this too and say like they don't understand anything and I, I would push back on that and say well I think they actually do understand things they may not understand them in quite the same way that we do but we are starting to elucidate like the mechanisms of understanding some of which turn out to be quite weird you know in comparison to how we feel like we understand but there is some understanding there but like it's not it doesn't follow from in my mind at all from the fact that humans take inspiration from other humans that we therefore have to you know allow AIs to kind of run wild and do whatever they want to do, you know, they're fundamentally different beasts. And I don't think it, you know, it is at all obvious, you know, what the, what the rights, you know, decisions around that should be. I do think it's really, it does get into, in my mind, definitely much more gray area when you start to name specific people, because you're talking in an agreement with studios, but then there's also the broader like societal question of, you know, all the TikTok creators can go to ChatGPT and ask for David Ogilvy, and they can just put stuff out there. And that, you know, nobody's even negotiating over that right now. Yeah. And I think there are probably d different thresholds for, and maybe these are arbitrary, but different thresholds for different types of media, you know. And I would say, you know, it's interesting. I, I think for if you plugged in, you know, give me some ideas in the, in the voice of this person. But you sort of made a, a contract with yourself that nothing that you get back is gonna is going to see the outside world. That whatever, even if it gives you some good ideas, you're gonna then filter those ideas through your own human prism. I think I still think that there's something morally okay with that. But the idea for me at least of taking the ideas that come straight from the model, especially if you're asking for ideas based on other famous writers, and then just using them whole cloth. There just feels something wrong to me about that. I do wonder, you know, obviously we don't know how these things are, how they're going to get better in terms of storytelling. And I, I wonder, you know, is there going to be a world where they get amazing, but in different ways than human storytelling is? And, and I wonder if there's going to be sort of two types of storytelling in the future, right? And we maybe we find that it tells stories that are just different and weird in a way that we never saw coming. And maybe there's a place for human stories and AI stories, but we're not asking the AI to sort of create or masquerade as human storytelling, but tell us stories that we never would have thought of. And as as somebody as a creative, you know, at heart, I would love to see those stories. I don't I don't necessarily want it to take my job away, so I'm sort of talking through both sides of my mouth, but at that point, you're almost verging into, you know, gaming, 
which is a completely legitimate and amazing form of storytelling in itself. So I think that there are there are delineations between different types of storytelling. I I do believe that there's there's something about singular fixed stories that are going to remain powerful, right? People who read the same book or watch the same movie or, t- or television series or listen to the same album and are able to discuss and bond over what that means to them individually and you know collectively. I think that those that type of fixed storytelling should remain. And I think there's a, a, a real cultural power to stuff like that. I and but of course I think gaming is is awesome and I I'm curious about you know there's a there's a thread by one of the former director of the Screen Actors Guild and she wrote this long thread about the studios wanting to create these basically choose your own adventure movies where everyone has their own action movie built for them where they are placed into you know if they're into Fast and Furious they can be put into the driver's seat next to Vin Diesel and the whole movie can be generated, bespoke in a moment's notice for them. And they get to see themselves or whatever, their son as the main character of Fast and the Furious. I could see that of just seeing where the technology is going. I can see that. I'm not sure that type of storytelling has a ton of power behind it culturally. For my personal taste, it feels like a novelty that I'm not sure people will, it feels like a bauble to me. I could be totally wrong, but I don't think that that has as much cultural power as, wow, we all watched the same movie. We have different thoughts, but we can bond as humans over it. And don't we tell stories to find solidarity as humans, right? Stories resonate, a single story like Lord of the Rings, right? That resonates with millions, billions of people over, you know, generations. It's, it's never, it doesn't change. It doesn't make adjustments for whoever's reading or experiencing it, right? It is this fixed story that we all see something that we recognize. In. So it's sort of trying to, it's an antidote to the sort of loneliness of, of life. And I worry that if we're all just getting these this sugar rush from these per- personalized stories, it loses the the sort of the core quality of of art or storytelling. There, I think you know if you look at the response to shows like Succession, which is written with a full writers' room over the course of a year, right? A traditional writers' room. The response to the depth and the texture and the unpredictable nature and the humanity of a show like that that's written by multiple people over a significant period of time doesn't compete with these sort of shorter, faster shows that you're seeing on other platforms. And I can see that that gulf growing, right? See people saying, what happened to the stories that we used to like that were that felt real and not flat. So I think, you know, there's, I think lay people assume that studios are incentivized to just find the best writing 
and create conditions that will tell the best stories. It's just not the case. They don't, especially now, as they're all publicly traded, most publicly traded companies, that's not paramount in what they're looking for. And I think just the shift to AI could accelerate that, where it's just about getting out content. And if we land on something that's good or three-dimensional or moving, that's an afterthought. I think that's the real fear is that we writers, we have a we have this financial incentive, but there's also a big moral thing here that maybe a lot of other unions don't have. We're trying to defend the sanctity of of really good storytelling. And that's it sounds a little, you know, woo-woo, right? To to say that we have this moral element that we're fighting for. And but I think we we, we also accept that that's a you know, we accept that mantle. At least I do. If there were a universal basic income and we had decoupled the the uh, the right to eat and you know and to have like basic needs met from jobs how how would that change your thinking on this if at all i'm all for decoupling those things so if 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 you told me that in 10 years we'll be at that place i might still be telling stories and 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 making films with my friends and probably a lot easier to do that I think the question is, are we going to make it through to that point or are we going to, yeah. So I, I'm a big fan of the book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism that I'm sure you've read. Aaron Bastani, I think is the name of the author. And it's the central question of that book is we can imagine that future. It's easy to imagine a future where those things are decoupled. It, what's a little harder to imagine is making it through, you know, late stage capitalism making it through these technologies, reaching the point where they can automate lots of jobs, but we don't reach that real post-scarcity where the decoupling happens because of this manipulated artificial, manipulated or artificial scarcity so that the people who control the technology can be enriched by it, right? But I'm all, I'm all for making it through that that gauntlet. I just don't know if we will. And so I think to be you know conservative or cautious as a guild, we we have to react as if that world is not going to exist. But yes, I mean if if that if that world does exist, I would happily happily give up being paid to write stories and the idea of having a, a job and making money from writing a story. If I, if I could trade that for everyone having a, a basic income and a, and a high, you know, a high standard of, of living. Yeah. Give me, give me that over my stupid writing job for sure. Yeah. That's a great utopian vision perhaps for us to end on the, they're in short supply. You know, maybe that's, that's one other thing I could leave you with is I think a positive vision for the future is maybe the thing that is most needed today. You know, we, the technology is coming online fast. The, you know, the upside potential of that in my mind is, you know, not just clear, but like clearly transformative. And, you know, we've got dystopian stories and scenarios in abundance, but very few kind of compelling articulations of like what a genuine positive future might be 
And, you know, arguably no, no better group to try to solve that problem of scarcity for us than the, uh, the writers. So if you want to take that challenge on, you know, I'm looking for inspiring visions of the future right now. I will say we are a cynical bunch and we've only become a little more cynical during these last three weeks, but we'll, we'll try to accept that challenge. Garrett Schaub, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Thank you so much for having me. 